Open your scriptures with me to Revelation chapter 9. You noticed one of our screens fell this week, the second law of thermodynamics working against us, and uh, that should be hung this week, and the projector then replaced or fixed either way. As I endeavor to keep up with world and current events every day, there's always a particular or a random article that grabs my attention. And this past week, it was first date to life imprisoned. And it tells of a situation on December 23rd where a 29-year-old lady on a first date with a wealthy Houston trial lawyer seems to have ruined deliberately two Andy Warhol paintings valued at $500,000 each. And then through two expensive sculptures worth $20,000 each. What was interesting about the article that really grabbed my attention uh, was, well, several things, but, but he went to call an Uber because she had, uh, she had taken in too much alcohol and she ran and hid from him. Okay, this is the story. And so then the Uber left and he called another Uber, at which point she got extremely angry and deliberately started ruining this expensive artwork. Apparently, the damage has been estimated at $300,000. This is what is most surprising. Texas law stipulates this, that the value of the items indicates the degree of the charge. Ruining artwork And she's facing potentially a life sentence. And I thought, how how often we fail to believe that in the spiritual realm? What image have we defaced? What is the worth of that image that we deface? Under Texas law, we face eternity in prison. What is the value of the image our sins have marred? What is the worth of the eternal holy God that we have ripped down off the walls of our heart and sort of thrown across the room of our life in disrespect? And this is a a difficult message for those of us who have sort of been weaned and raised on what has been called a moralistic therapeutic deism. That simply means there is a good God who created us to be happy and fair and kind and to think well of ourselves as we all travel to heaven. And if that's the sort of religious culture that you have been feeding on, then all of a sudden when you see these images in Revelation, it's going to not only be offensive, but unbelievable. But if you come back to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, which is the center and centering vision of the God and the Lamb, and you understand the worth of God that we are made in His image, then all of a sudden this starts to really make sense because Christians of all people understand the seriousness of sin. That's part of the gospel. There really is no good news. It's not good news unless you come face to face with sin. These judgments remind us of features in God's character that have been softened by years of soft Christianity. As William W. Clow calls it, 
that we need to be reminded of the dark line down God's face. See, that's an image that we haven't really had to wrestle with. But yet, isn't that the reason that we avoid the minor prophets? We avoid Leviticus. Sometimes we avoid Revelation. Because in here, we see mercy and exacting justice. Grace and violent vindication. Sacrificial love with searing holiness. That's what we see. It's not a comfortable message. R.C. Sproul said, A God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. Here's what is fascinating about Revelation chapter 9. That's where I've asked you to open your scriptures to. That's where we are at in our study of Revelation. But I just want to sort of tease out your interest because this is what you're going to see. The transition verse, the last verse of chapter 8, an eagle talks. Why should that, why should that fascinate you? Because that's not normal in our, in our world, right? So all of a sudden you have an eagle talking. Secondly, you have locusts out of the pit of hell that heap torture on earth dwellers for five months. Why should that interest you? Because it's frightening, right? It's not just a scare tactic for scaring people. It's, it's calling you to wake up. Why do I say it's calling us to wake up? Because this letter was written to who? To the churches. You're also going to see four angels who are bound in the river Euphrates that are finally unleashed. And then you're going to somehow, you're going to see that somehow these angels transform into war horses and riders numbering 200 million that kill a third of humanity. I'm just taking the images out of Revelation 9. I haven't created anything. I haven't made any of this up. This is what John saw. He's, going to, he's actually going to say that in a rare phrase in Revelation 9 because I think he understands this is very unbelievable. And he's going to say, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. I'm just telling you what I saw in my vision. Now let's take some time with this chapter because it's these vivid and colorful images that are designed and intended to have an impact upon complacent hearts. And my prayer is this, that God will still awaken hearts that have been numbed by horror films, demonic novels, evil comic books, and violent games. Look at chapter 8, verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. These final three trumpets are given that designation. Woe, woe, and woe. It seems to mirror the thrice repeated holy, holy, holy of God when they are gathered around and worshiping the God, uh, worshiping God and the Lamb. This becomes a very clear clarion call for repentance. You want to know why Revelation 9 is here, why we're given a glimpse into what is about to happen. It is a very clear call towards repentance. And this, folks, dashes one of the common lies of Satan. Here's what he does. Here's what he whispers. You don't have to worry. There's still time. 
You don't have to worry. There's other chances. And what these trumpets are going to show is that the chances are running out. Matter of fact, Jesus pressed this home by illustrating a man who had great wealth. And he said to himself, you've done really well in life. And so what he does is he invests it. He builds barns and he tries to multiply. And unexpectedly, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. What these trumpet blasts are starting to warn is there won't always be another chance to turn to God. The fifth and sixth trumpets, the first and second woe, participate in the mission of God to the world by providing two things. One, final proof of his power over idols and the demons that work behind them. And two, a final chance to repent. Look at chapter nine, verse one. I mean, look at what God's word says. Verse one of chapter nine. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. I want us to I want us to stop here because in this chapter, John's going to make frequent use of the word like. And what that's going to help us as, as readers understand is he's using terms to describe this with what he is familiar with, but it may not necessarily be that. He's seeing things that are like familiar things in his world, but may be something he's never seen before. Verse 2, He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, And they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die but death will flee from them. Now, as we enter into this, we need to be very careful to handle God's word in a way that honors him. And if you go all the way back to Revelation 1, these, these are not just sensational pictures to satisfy curiosity. These are actually pictures that are intended to be obeyed and to fuel believers and churches on mission. First thing I want you to understand about this fifth trumpet is God's sovereignty. So if you find yourself fearful or you're like, I don't know if I really want to hear this. I mean, it's not uncommon for parents to read this passage and the kids to go and have nightmares that evening. You know, so if you're entering this with fear, this is the first thing you need to know. God is in control of this entire event. Matter of fact, that's what you're supposed to notice. Note the phrases. The star, which is a he, so it's a personality, he was given. The star, whoever it is, was given. Then the locusts, they were given power. Then the locusts, they were told, sort of this picture of them being under the leadership. And then in in verse 4, the locusts, they were allowed. All of this is happening under the complete control of God. 
This parallels chapter 13, 7, where it says of the beast. Okay, so as we move further into Revelation, the beast is going to appear. And Revelation 13, 7 says this. It was allowed. You hear that? The sovereignty. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So in all these judgments and all these visions, we need to come back to Revelation chapter four and five with a vision of God on his throne and the lamb and center sort of calibrate or align ourselves back with the sovereign God. Here's the point. God will be in complete control of devastating future events over the pit, over demons, over the beast, over the false prophet over Satan himself, and God is in complete control right now over all those things. And one of the first questions that I think comes out of this is, in what areas of our life are we struggling to believe that? I mean, if he's in control of those characters in this story, in what areas are we struggling to believe that he is in control right now? Evil is not an indication that God is absent. Evil is an indication that God's redemptive plan is still unfolding and that things still need to be set right. Because that's what we're doing. We're moving in Revelation towards Revelation chapter 21 and 22 where you see this new heaven and new earth where there is no more death and there's no more sorrow and all the old things are passed away and all the new things have been realized. That's where we're moving. Evil is not an indication that God does not exist. It's an indication that we must walk by faith in an evil world and stay on mission. Look at God's plan in this fifth trumpet. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And this really presents a particularly difficult interpretive problem. A star fallen from heaven to earth. And you would, you would naturally think this is who? I mean, as I first read that, I thought that sounds like we're looking back in history and this is Satan. Because even Jesus said when the when the disciples came to him and they were marveling that the demons obeyed them, he says, don't marvel that the demons obey your voice. I saw Satan fall out of heaven. But it doesn't seem that Satan would be given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So this is difficult when describing a star, there is little difference between falling and descending. So what it seems here is that an angel, which we cannot be certain of its identity, is descending, not necessarily morally, but geographically. And an angel is coming down and he unlocks this pit. Look at verse one again. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened and the smoke from the shaft. Again, as a mediator, an angel comes down and locks the pit. The pit, the abyss, is a closed prison. And in time, the beast will emerge out of the pit. Revelation chapter 11, verse 7 and 17, verse 8. In the New Testament, that word abyss is used two other times outside of Revelation. The first one is in Romans 10, verse 7, and it calls it the place of the dead. And then in Luke 8, 31, it uses that word again, and it refers to the prison for evil spirits. 
There's also an imagery that sort of leaps out in two other books, and that's Second Peter chapter 4 and Jude 6, where angels, and some of you will be familiar with this sort of this imagery, angels are kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains. So there seems to be this group of angels that are actually kept and prevented from doing work on earth at this point until this pit is opened. Okay, just taking the imagery that's given to us there. But what comes out? What actually comes out first? Look at, look at verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. Now this may refer to, and I, and I really do believe that the, the fifth and the sixth trumpets refer to human invasion. In Joel, the locusts, he describes these locusts. Listen to what Joel says, uh, the minor prophet. For a nation has come up against my land powerful and beyond number. In verse 4, he had talked about four different kinds of locusts. The one comes and eats, and the other one comes and bears it down even farther. And then by the fourth locust, nothing is left. And in reference to the locust, Joel says, for a nation, these are people, has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. He continues to say, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. Seems to be that Joel is sort of looking forward to the fifth and the sixth trumpets. And what Joel says is this in Joel 2.31, that this is a glimpse of, quote, the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. So it seems that whatever is happening in John's vision is, is indicating a human, at least perhaps demonically influenced, but human invasion. Look at verse 4. Look at the locusts' work. Because they do not harm what locusts normally harm, the natural realm, vegetation. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only what are they to harm? What does God's word say? People. Only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So believers, just like the plagues back in Exodus, God's children were protected. In this case, believers will be protected. That means they're present on the land when this happens. But it will not harm them, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. The people that do not have the knowledge of God that are not his children. Notice the pain. People will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And that's a disturbing, that's a disturbing description, isn't it? Do you see the grace of God in that, though? So here are people that are, that are suffering for five months, according to John. Which, which is, by the way, the natural, basically the average lifespan of a locust. God doesn't extend it. It's five months. That whatever is happening here in this invasion, that people are suffering for five months, and they will seek death and not be able to find it. And folks, that is God's grace too. Because God would rather use pain to turn us back to Him than to die in suffering without Him. Because He knows what's next eternally. God is trying to 
trying to turn people to himself, away from idols and to the living God, just like Acts says. Now let's move to probably what is the most bizarre description in the book, and that's the locust's appearance. Again, the word like is used seven times. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots. With horses rushing into battle, they have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Now, attempts have been made to compare this to modern gunship helicopters uh, with mustard gas or with bombers whose sting is in their tail, chemical warfare. And we need to be careful that we don't become sensational in interpreting this and limiting it simply to our time period. We need to let the image stand. It's an invasion of some sort, and it's an invasion of... A disturbing appearance, whatever it was that John saw, and the power will be to hurt for five months. That's what's clear. And this is the point that we should take away from this. God sets limits on their destructiveness, both in intensity and duration, which underlies his mercy and his sovereignty. And now we need to be reminded of this in a world in, in a culture that no longer sees the spiritual world around us, look at verse 11. Because these locusts, matter of fact, Proverbs says the locusts, they have no king. These locusts, or the description of the locusts, do have a king. Look at verse 11. They have, a king, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Now those two terms are synonymous. One, the Hebrew form, the other, the Greek form, both mean destroyer. And now taking those two terms, this sort of becomes a proper name, the destroyer. And interestingly, the name uh, of the Greek god Apollo is taken from Apollyon. And when they would worship him as one of many gods, he was he was not only the god of music, Apollo, but he was the god of plague and pestilence. And one of his signs was the locust. Interestingly, from a historical standpoint, Domitian, one who created great persecution upon the early church, uh, believed himself to be Apollo in the flesh. And so you have sort of historical echoes of this destroyer coming to cause harm to humanity. Folks, this is real. Let me just pause there. This isn't Lord of the Rings. Or Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, this is real. And I think both of those stories, the, the effect and the interest of both of those stories is the fact that they both wrote to image these realities to some degree. That there is a great evil one. That there is a great king. That the battle is finished as we walk by faith. That was the first invasion. Now look at verse 12 as we move into the transition. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And we're only going to look at the next woe. The third woe, the sixth trumpet. So we move from torture to death. The sixth trumpet. Look at God's sovereignty again. Verse 13. 
Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Okay, the voice, probably not God's voice, probably an angel that he's around the golden altar. Either it's, it's an act of worship or it's in response to the saints' prayers that we saw before. Either way, the voice comes from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, and notice God's control here, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Release. That's God's sovereignty. They've been bound. God's sovereignty. These angels had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Exact timing. No detail escapes God. Then the four angels, quote, were released to kill a third of mankind. Look at verse 14. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. Remember? Mercy mixed with justice. Searing holiness and sacrificial love. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And John reminds us, I heard their number. These four angels are bound, which indicates they are most likely demonic. The mention of the river Euphrates is interesting. It served as the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. It was one of the rivers that originally flowed out of the Garden of Eden. It was one of the borders when God gave to Abraham and his descendants the land. It was from the Nile to the river Euphrates. The river became a symbol of foreign invasion as the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians all came across the Euphrates to attack. It's a symbol of invasion. They're crossing that border. And the judgment, this judgment, the sixth trumpet prepares the way for the sixth bowl. Remember, you have the seven seals then the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. And in the sixth bowl, the Euphrates, this, this border will dry up and the kings of the east will march over. So all this is in preparation. But again, the big point, it's all under God's what? Control. Mounted troops. It seems, you keep hearing me use the word perhaps, and it seems, and I'm, I'm sort of in this you know, kind of mirroring John, where he said, it's like, it's like. It seems the four angels somehow become or at least influence an army of war horses with their riders numbering how many? 200 million. Okay, go home and do the math. Just look at the little equation given to you there. 200 million. And just as you saw an in-depth description of the locusts, you're now going to get an in-depth description of the war horses. So let's look at this. Look at verse 17. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And perhaps John is thinking of the, the Parthians, who were amazing archers, rode horseback. Their armor was beautiful like sapphire. It could be that John is using that as a comparison to try to explain what he's seeing. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. 
by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. John takes the most terrifying beast that would have been known in his day, the lion, and he keeps comparing what he is seeing to this very dangerous, ravenous animal who tears apart violently its prey. Again, attempts have been made to compare this description to mobilized ballistic missile launchers or tanks, right? The sulfur coming out of their mouths with mobile missile launchers on the back. But again, we have to be careful not to limit it to images that we are familiar with or images that are happening in our timeline of events. The fifth and sixth trumpets both deal with what? And if you were to just read this, what is it talking about? As we move towards application, what is, what is it talking about? It's talking about some kind of invasion, whether human or demonic is debatable. They are at least demonically influenced, and it is an invasion. Most important, and this is where we're going to land this morning, is the repentance that such horrifying invasions should evoke and turn people to God doesn't work. Look at verse 20. See, because we, we can get so distracted with the details that we forget this is where this chapter moves. The rest of mankind, look at verse 20, who were not killed by these plagues. That's two-thirds of the world still, of the unbelieving world, did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. Every kind of material used to craft an idol is mentioned in John's day. They didn't give that up, the worshiping of the demons and idols, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Think about our culture's idols. Money, sex, and power. All gifts from God, but distorted and then worshipped as God. Satan never creates, folks. Satan always perverts. He always distorts. He takes something beautiful that God has given to a man and a woman within the confines of marriage and he perverts it and he distorts it. And then it's worshipped. And families are breaking apart because that has become an idol in someone's life. Demonic powers, folks, are behind all idolatry. There is no harmless idolatry. There is no soft idolatry. Idolatry leads to evil actions. Matter of fact, Paul says this to the church at Corinth. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. But then he says this in chapter 10. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So what is it that causes someone to love a new iPhone more than God. That's idolatry, but what's behind it? It is a demonic perversion to worship something that insignificant in place of the true God. And these judgments are God's desire to turn people back to himself. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Even the demons testify this. They looked 
at Jesus and say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The demon's testimony about Jesus is accurate. Behind all idolatry is a demonic influence. And God is asking us to repent. So, every part of the Bible is useful for teaching. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that. Different passages are useful for different circumstances. Passages like the fifth and sixth trumpets usually will not comfort the grieving. Or encourage lonely people. But it can, and it is designed to shake us from our complacency. What is it that God desires for the church to learn and obey? First of all, it is God's plan, not Satan's, that is moving to completion. Do you trust that? It was God's plan that Jesus die on the cross. Secondly, the cross testifies that God loves a world hostile to him. The Son of God entered suffering to liberate us from eternal suffering. We either die in faith or we die in our sin. And eternity hangs in the balance of that decision. And then finally, God's grace to warn us, the church, of these events before they happen gives us a responsibility to unbelievers of what is at stake and what is coming. Listen to this passage. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, in the fact that, that God sent Jesus to die, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Heads bowed, eyes closed, all in better. Music team forward. It is possible, even in the church, it is easy, though more subtle than in John's day, for us to keep idols of our heart. To value things more than we value God. To love a thing or a possession more than a love for God who calls us to invest and engage in other people who do not know Him. This morning as we sing these final two hymns is a response to the revelation that we just saw. A response to again dedicate our life to Him. A response to turn from idols, or if you're an unbeliever, it is a gracious invitation that you still have this chance to turn to Him. Let's pray.